0: Hey everybody, welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Sutras here, uh, fresh from New York Comic Con, and man, do I have con crud, I can't tell you. Uh, I went to work today at the radio station, I'm about uh, 50% as far as uh, energy and uh, my voice, and because of that, I have to uh, lean on the uh, great stockpile of wonderful panels I have from uh, Cincy Comic Con from last month. And I'm uh, presenting today a nice hour-long panel with Marty Pasco. Uh, Marty's been on the show many times before. It was at my suggestion that uh, Cincy take advantage of uh, having Marty as a guest. I'm glad they did. He had a blast, and we had a lot of fun. And literally the very first panel of Cincy Comic Con was this one-on-one with me and Marty. Uh, we've talked before about his animation career, his uh, insight on uh, the comic business, working for years at DC Comics, uh, his work in uh, syndicated comic strips like The World's Greatest Heroes for DC, the, uh, the Star Trek uh, comic strip coming right off the 79 film. Uh, Marty's done it all, uh, animation, live action uh, television, the Twilight Zone show from the 80s, uh, shows like Simon and Simon and Roseanne, uh, and uh, it was great to talk to him uh, in this uh, panel. So, uh, no sponsorship, nothing, because I'm I'm, uh, really low energy, but I had to put out something, so I'm really glad that I've got this great stockpile of panels from Cincy Comic Con, and more are going to come in the days and weeks ahead. So, enjoy this conversation with me and Marty Pasco on today's Word Balloon. Thank you, League of Word Balloon listeners, for your support. If uh, you would like to support the show and subscribe via Patreon, you don't have to. Word Balloon was free. It'll always be free. But if you want to support the show, go to wordballoon.com. Check out our uh, Patreon uh, page at patreon.com slash wordballoon. And it'll give you all the information on how to subscribe to the show. Thank you, League of Word Balloon listeners. Here's a, a freebie today with Marty Pasco on Word Balloon. Thank you for coming out. Welcome to Cincy Comic Con. I hope uh, it's it's literally the first it's the second hour of the con, but I hope your first hour was very enjoyable. I hope this second hour is enjoyable as well. I'm very excited to have our guest. My name's John Suntress. I host it's, a, it's only been an hour. Oh I'm sorry. <laughs> I, uh, I host a podcast called Word Balloon and I'm uh, very excited. To, uh, I've had him on my show uh, many times. I always get great audience feedback when we talk. But this is an opportunity to have a live conversation with uh, with a great writer. Not just his DC comic work, stuff like Superman and the Joker, and uh, those are the two. That, uh, Black Hawks, his great reboot of Black Hawks in the '80s, but uh, Secret Six. Secret Six, of mm-hmm. course. Thank you. But uh, certainly a television writer as well, Simon
1: and Simon. Okay, Willie really Wince a, a big another big show, and but he's going to wince again. Roseanne, I'm still alive, and I'm still working. <laughs> and animation work, like there is a tomorrow, not a yesterday. <laughs> absolutely, Batman, Mask of the Phantasm.
0: One of the principal writers of that as well. Please welcome Marty Pasco, everybody.
1: Good to see you, man. Uh, I'm glad to glad to be here. Yeah. Excellent. Uh-huh. And, um, when it's time for the obituary what time is it now um i'll call you all right right. Oh, yes. well, what we engrave on that tombstone will be your writing i will say that it would be my privilege not my pleasure because well, i like having you and i like talking i can't be any more embarrassed because i'll be dead you know?
0: <laughs> <laughs> so let's uh you know <clears throat> and i'm sure people have questions um when when did you break like dc was your first big break would you say
1: um, was there stuff prior to D.C.? Yeah. Comic uh, <laughs> oh voice? Oh, God, it really is. <laughs> this is your life. Exactly. Where's Ralph well Is there. well, it's well, it's well, even, well even. Yes. Do you yeah. recognize this voice? Oh. <laughs> You're fired. <laughs> <laughs> Which one of those is that voice? <laughs> there were several of those. Now, um, actually, uh, what happened was uh, Doug Mensch, um, a wonderful writer, Uh, was writing for the Warren books, Creepy Erie and Vampirella, and uh, we were corresponding. He became a subscriber to this fanzine that I was doing, and I wanted to break in, and Warren was the only publisher at the time that was accepting Over the Transom submissions. Wow! So I took a short story, a horror story, that I'd won an award for uh, uh, in in high school, and in my senior year, I turned that into a comic book script um using a format that Doug had shown me and it, it sold right out of the gate and uh and was published under Doug's name. <laughs> by Oh, okay. yes. oh that yeah, sucks. sucks. Well they they fixed it later, but um what was interesting about that was it never got that easy again. <laughs> <laughs> was Louise Jones your uh, editor then? No, no, she, she came along a lot uh, later. There was a guy named John Cochran. I don't know what it became of him. Who okay. was the editor. And then Marv Wolfman followed after him. And I did that for a couple of years. But did you then, have any... I was going to say before we leave
0: Warren, did you have many interactions with Jim Warren? Uh, oh. yes <laughs> <laughs> I, I always love when I have a conversation I land on a landmine
1: and you know, you know, well, I'll, I'll tell this story I, I've told it before but um, Jim had the longest memory for slights of anybody I've ever known he was on a panel in New York with Neil Adams and a bunch of other people and Neil started to pontificate about how comics as we know them will be dead yeah. in ten years well In a sense, he was right, because in 10 years thereafter, we had graphic novels, uh, we had non-code books, we had all kinds of things that were comics, but didn't resemble comics as we knew them then. But Jim took exception to this, and there was this vigorous debate. And I stood up and I asked a question that was sincere, but got a big laugh from the audience because of sarcasm that they assumed. And Jim scowled at me, and I didn't think anything of it because, you know, I'm just this kid. A year later, same convention, I find myself in an elevator with Jim Warren. And I'm standing in the corner, and he's staring at me. And the the elevator's crowded. We go up several floors. Everybody gets off the elevator. And then finally, it's just him and me as we're getting to my floor. He's, He's up above. And he finally looks at me and he says, I know you. You insulted me at this convention a year ago. I ought to bust your nose. (laughs) And at that point, the elevator door opens and I say, well, that would really be a case of the shit hitting the fan, wouldn't it? And I got out of the elevator. (laughs) I'd stand that ahead. I was going to ask
0: if because um, you, you started to say that it was never as easy as it was for that first submission mm-hmm. um, you use at DC you were you know under Julie Schwartz the, mm-hmm. the editor for Superman mm-hmm. and the, G, uh, Julie had a reputation of taking a story idea I mean explain to me what explain to me the process it's better to hear from you in terms of you having a story idea and pitching it to Julie give us the process
1: you go in, you sit down, you say, I'd like to do a story about Berniak. And within five minutes, it becomes a story about Luther. <laughs> so was he...
0: You know, it's funny, before we started recording, we were talking about how controlling Gene Roddenberry could be mm-hmm. with Star Trek. Was it like that with Julian and Superman? In terms, or was... You know, why, why would the
1: change happen? With Julian, you had to earn his trust. Um... They had a whole complicated idea at DC at the time about you know, bullying you up through the ranks and and getting you to the point where you were ready to take on the big titles. And there was a system for that because of the way the books were structured. There were backup stories and uh, uh, short anthology stories, as you could say. Yeah, eight pages, five pages, even. Yeah, and then you would get to the point where You knew you would arrive when they stopped rewriting your dialogue. (laughs) (laughs) I I, worked with Julie, no, about three years. Wow. Uh, You know, Julie got to the point where he said, "You know, you're a pretty good dialogue man," and I said, "Thank you." And um, repressed the impulse to say, "Why are you still rewriting it then?" (laughs) And he actually said to me at one point, "Well, you know, they're paying me; I have to do something." You know, interesting. Interesting. He literally, would, thought he had to, you know, make at least one or two changes, because if he didn't, he wasn't justifying his salary. Interesting.
0: You know. How many other editors of like the classic editors like that did you work with? I know you worked with Joe Orlando on uh, on some of the the mystery and uh, supernatural stuff. Yeah,
1: Joe was Joe was good because he wouldn't really touch your copy Um, the other editors that I worked for were writers originally and some of the best writers in the business and I learned tremendous things from them I mean my God Jerry Conway, Len Wein um, and and some of the great artists too Joe Hubert Carmine Infantino all of that was a, t- a tremendous learning experience. Um, and I, I, I kid Murray Bolton off and Julie Schwartz only out of writerly ego because two of the worst lines of dialogue that have ever appeared under my byline were not mine. And well, Murray was the kind of guy, you'd walk down the hall and he'd be standing there and if you were, looked like you were under 25, he'd say, oh, you, kid, or Pasco, what do the kids say now for hep? <laughs> hep. For the 70s. Yes. Uh, yeah, and I said, uh, hip. And if you've lettered the Hep, just take the whiteout pen and eliminate those two little, those, those three little stems and change it from Hep to hip. You know. Jeez. Well, I, 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 he, he, he had a series called Ghosts and they were all anonymous because they were supposed to be true stories right? so I, I, like I, that. Let, I used to buy that I let go the whole idea I'm going to be rewritten because my name's not going to be on it but I, I did this story about a, a ghost cop and there's a scene where the, the, the cop appears out of the, the fog and um, somebody says to somebody about a character who has a gun look he's got his rod out <laughs> I think that's different. It went past the code. Nobody thought anything about it. And I did a story, I did a story for Julie with the atom, and they, they, they had this thing called the time pool, where he'd go back in time and, you know. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's awesome. Know. It's the time pool series. Okay. Um, and so we did one of these. And the idea was uh, October... 31st 1939 World of the Worlds okay he goes back in time and he's mistaken for a Martian right <laughs> and there's, it, it was um Mike Grohl's Mike first story. oh fantastic so he illustrated it and I remember I was in college when the thing came out and I picked up the book I didn't we didn't get comps at that point and I picked the book up and I'm reading this in the cafeteria and I get to the line of dialogue the Julie has inserted. Take that you midget Martian uh, ah, ah, ah. I dropped the tray. There was like mess of food all over the floor. I was like, what? So I got over that frustration, though, pretty (laughs) pretty, pretty quickly.
0: Those kind of frustrations inside. It had to be pretty cool being a college person and being
1: a published writer. The thing about writing comics that served me very, very well later on was a very early experience in seeing how other people interpret your work and learning how to work With their strengths and weaknesses, how to play to them and how not to. And that has served me well. Um, And I. I don't think that writers and artists play together as well anymore as they used to, um, as far as I can tell. Um, There's so many egos invested in this business. There's an awful lot of struggle for creative control. At least this is what I perceive. Uh, Not necessarily everybody's experience, certainly. But uh, um, there's this very strong desire, I think, on a lot of artists coming up to write it themselves. But not everybody has those chops. excuse me not everybody is Frank Miller not everybody is Walt Simonson Um, you think Hubert was a guy that obviously could write and and draw as well I enjoyed his last output of graphic novels but I don't think Joe did it any earlier than he was ready Okay. because as good as he was at what he did as an artist he knew he had a lot to learn as a writer He learned from Bob Kaniger. And those kinds of collaborations, where people are in rhythm, in sync with each other, but are also critical of each other's work, and know how to express that criticism in terms that don't damage the ego, that's where those great collaborations come from. And I would argue from what I, I know of it that, like for example, John Byrne and Chris Claremont and X-Men didn't have that kind of relationship. Um, I don't know how much. I mean, Can you give me an example of a great writer-artist collaboration that is more recent, more contemporary, that is generally, you would think, among fans, considered to be very effective?
0: Bendis and Oming on powers. I mean, I I think a lot of the creator-owned books today are literally, the writer does with that in mind. It's like, hey, I don't want to step on your territory. We are doing this book together what a what do you like to draw and b please if you've got a better way than my script of conveying visually what you want please ask or please jump in Mm -hmm. and i know Baker and steve efting work like that and a lot of ed's uh, artists that he works with and stuff because i think you're right i mean and it's certainly in the 90s it became art first writing second but i think in response to that in the modern age so there's a couple examples
1: well, I'll give you an example from Hubert and Canagar. There was a great deal of trust involved in that relationship, and it was also true that they were both very, very fast. Um, the way they would do the uh, the war books. Well, first of all, let me back up. Canagar was probably the most prolific writer in comics beside Stanley. For how many decades? Three uh, decades, almost four. Well, he started in 41, and he officially retired in 73, so there There you you go. go. And Bob, on a little portable typewriter, would write eight pages on the train coming in from Long Island before his workday started, and another eight pages on the train going home. (laughs) Joe Kubert was very, very fast. Routinely, let me back up a step, at D.C., it was always, he never let the artist who's available go away with that work. You never let them, you always have something ready for them. And that was the pressure that the writers were always under. But Joe would call up Bob at like 8 in the morning and say, well, I finished the uh, Sergeant Rocket, got anything else for me? And Bob would say, "Uh, come in at uh, 3. On the train, Bob would write 24 pages of comics. Wow. Eight in the morning,
0: eight, you know. In the office and eight on the the way home. Exactly, crazy.
1: And when uh, Hubert would come in, he'd sit down and they'd take out a, a ream of eight and a half by 11 paper and Hubert, inside of 15 minutes, would thumbnail the entire job sitting there with Bob. Wow. And Bob would say, no, no, maybe this angle would work better. But I and he would walk away at the end of the day with the book essentially thumbnail. Wow. And it would be penciled in the matter of like two or three days. And Bob, I mean, uh, uh, Joe was one of those guys like uh, Jim, Jim Apparo, who, because he did the whole thing, he didn't really type pencil. It was, just, it was just shapes indicated, you know, and was something in some cases pra- practically stick figures, and the rendering would be done in the inking, and it, it's just you know amazing. I mean, Walt Simonson was like that too, but Walt was a little more painstaking. I I, I don't mean to speak of him in the past tense; he's still working still. Sure, this, but oh, yeah. I'm saying from my point of view,
0: when you were, when I were,
1: yeah, yeah. You've had great collaboration.
0: And by the way, folks, honestly, because Marty and I can lapse into conversation. So please, if you do have questions, yeah. please please come up and step up. And, you know, we can stop our talking and
1: get questions from you. But, three, uh, three words, John. Learn to interrupt. <laughs> Learn to say, "Marty, if, shut up." You're wrong. No, no, it's all good. And if you know, if you hear,
0: honestly, if you go back and look at my word balloon archive of podcasts, Marty and I have marathon conversations, and we don't realize it. And it's like, you know, Marty, we've been talking for three hours, really. And it's like, because we are, we're, we're happy to talk and and you know, get things going. But again, so How about super those things we were going to talk
1: about. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. well, there you go. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you know, please let's let's get uh, into something. I'm, I'm just looking at the time. No, absolutely, no. You know,
0: um, if you. Follow Follow Marty on Facebook, which I would encourage you to do. I I think he has really interesting ideas about the business, where it is now, where it might be going, and some of the concerns. One of your jobs back in the 90s was you were the liaison a lot when a film company... Well, it was a little more recently. Oh, excuse
1: me, early 2000s? Essentially, the job I had. was enlarged and morphed into something that is a component of the job that Jeff Johns has with DC Entertainment now. Uh, it was my job to uh, coordinate <clears throat> the uses of the the properties, the rights that the various divisions had to all the characters. And I used to refer to myself as the director in charge of being yelled at by Burbank. I would have these screaming matches. Not matches, I just sat there and just, you know, Friday, Friday afternoon was hell because Friday afternoon was when Al Goff at Smallville would call up and in a stream of profanity, what the, what do you mean I would, we can't use green can't?" You know, and I was to say, you know, I was the guy who had to say, well, no, you can't use Alec Holland because that's part of the Swamp Thing property, and Joel Silver has an option on it, and you can't do this because the, you know, and it just frustrated everybody.
0: And this is when, obviously, independent producers and studios had these licenses.
1: Well, it, it was a period of transition, because for licensing purposes. The character groups were all considered discrete. They were not in the business of presenting a, cri- a unified universe. Exactly, exactly. And this was alien to Marvel. In fact, when I was uh, developing Spider-Man uh, for Marvel Animation, Stan Lee kept asking me why I was asking the questions that I was asking.
0: Uh, because was this uh, well, is the '90s Spider-Man cartoon. Yeah,
1: go yeah. out. And we had a very awkward meeting with executives from, uh, you know, Ron Perlman's company, um, and Stan and Avi Arad, and Stan's pitching things like, well, well, maybe the kingpin can come in here. and I'm saying, can we use the kingpin on the show? He says, what are you talking about? And I said, well, what have you sold to Fox? you've sold the Spider-Man property but why do you want to give away the store why do you want to give them Daredevil why do you want to give it's a separate license and the, the guys from New Line are sitting there going Good job. Good job. You were some Marvel at the time, yeah. And that was when I was dead in the water with Stan Lee. (laughs) Really? Oh, yeah. Dead, dead, Yeah. Well, because he hadn't thought of it. Sure. Right. And the uh, the other experience was uh, trying to work out the pilot, which I was committed at that point to write. (laughs) And suddenly, as the writer and the producer, the writer-producer on the show, I'm reduced to taking dictation in this meeting. Stanley and a toy executive, Avi Arad, are batting around all of these ideas. Oh, and then we can do this, and then it can, And I'm scribbling the notes. And at one point, I look up and I say, guys, is this a two-parter? And Stan says, no, what do you mean? I said, well, you're in Act 4 now. <laughs> no sense of structure. Um, and, and Stan, you know, he didn't really write full scripts. He'd never really written screenplays. It, he was all about the plot and then the artist would fill in you know, the stuff that Stan couldn't bother sure. himself with. And then he'd dialogue it when he would get the pages. And in fact, in his first animation gig, that's how he tried to approach the material. To
0: he do you a Marvel style for animation? what's called Marvel style yes plot first write the script yes or, or I should say create the animation and then and then write the dialogue
1: yes and he would have um, crazy on the first uh, Fantastic Four series at uh, I think it was Hanna-Barbera the old one in the 60s yeah the one the one where they had a or didn't or the one there was a robot okay so that a, was the 70s one oh,
0: okay.
1: yeah, yeah yeah no I am but I am talking about the one in the 60s okay. because I've seen the storyboards that Jack said yeah okay because yeah human torches in the original yeah and basically what Jack would do was a comic book that you know on board paper and then the guys would have to come in and uh Indicate the camera directions. You know, tightening in on the shot. And
0: are you confusing on. that with the Marvel superheroes uh,
1: cartoons that were literally no, lifted no, on the I, comic pages? No, in fact, I just it. recently okay. saw the storyboards. Okay, uh, go on, yeah, please. And people have to basically say to Stan, it, 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 "You can't do that. It doesn't work that way." Sure. You know, you have to write the dialogue first. <laughs> time the track, yeah. and then board the show, you know. Jeez. Well, the first time I met with him, he said to me, well, you know, I, I don't really know that much about animation. And I'm like, and that's supposed to inspire confidence? Why? Because you've been in the business for 20 years. So you're either being disingenuously false, or you're making me nervous, <laughs> you know? But But anyway, the, the problem, I, let me just cut to the chase. When they fired me from Spider-Man, I found out that Avi Arad called in the writers that I had brought in and said, you know nothing about Spider-Man, and summarily dismissed them. The writers were Lenny Bean, Marv Wolfman, Jerry Conway, and Mark Donatus. All of whom were working on shows for me, but they knew nothing about Spider-Man. So, very interesting. Wow, man, crazy. Right.
0: Well, and you—you you, uh, one of the things we talked about, possibly talking about here, uh, was the relationship now between uh, the the entities of Warner Brothers and Disney, and how they how they treat the publishing end.
1: Well, w- once. The exploitation of these characters, superheroes in mass media became big business. The dynamic changed. And I can point out that very very specifically the day that it did. Uh, the Wall Street Journal ran a piece that Variety picked up about how Time Warner stockholders should excoriate DC, or Warner Brothers, for not more effectively exploiting their library. here was. this. Uh, or a year-ish, about 2001. That early, okay. I would assume
0: based 2001, on the reaction of Iron Man and everything. Well, it was Come the on. it
1: was the it was the first year that the trade papers did full-color supplements. The San Diego Comic Con. It was the it was the first year that you know San San Diego became the con film festival in Spaniards. You know. Sure. Yeah. Um, Pretty much. Let's go down and make a deal by the sea. You know. Um, (laughs) Once they discovered that then the dominoes started falling over and the, the the total paradigm shift from the the situation i described started to take place we're selling a created universe and that's that's working out for them but of course to service that an entire business apparatus had to be created which is why you have all of these people in Burbank now and presumably They're all in Burbank, because on the Disney end, they're in Burbank. No, no, they're all in Burbank, you're right. Um, whose, Whose job it is to keep track of who created what, how do we give them credit, forget about the contracts, forget about the back of the check, forget about the vouchers that were signed. It's a whole new ballgame. Basically, it's the business of who do we have to worry about suing us today? Which is how you get these... Bizarre permutations. For example, Batman is now created by Bob Kane with Bill Finger, as opposed to, no, we don't mention Bill Finger as if he ever existed. So, I mean, it's it's it, it's amazing. Um, nobody says things like, well, who's this Doctor Light and what does she have to do with the Flash and why is she in this show? You know, because you've got Jeff Johns, now the president of DC Entertainment, right there in the room. I understand from you that the relationship is a little, a little bit different now on the Marvel end. They're kind of distancing themselves. Well,
0: yeah. After, uh, last fall, uh, Kevin Feige went to Alan Horn, the head of Disney Films, because he had been frustrated by, as it's been reported, Ike Perlmutter, the head of Marvel's cheapness when it comes to the movies, because Perlmutter had a say. And they would maybe develop a uh, an idea for a film, and Promoter would say, "No, that's too expensive. You got to cut it down." And you know, they, the the Mar- Marvel had the Marvel movie panel of the creators and. Uh publisher Dan Buckley and Joe Cassada and Brian Bendis and Alan Fine looking over the script and, and making creative suggestions I think to the benefit of that but apparently Perlmutter was a guy that kind of held on to the purse strings so Feige went to Alan Horn head of Disney films and said I've made you seven billion dollars with these Marvel movies I'd rather not have to deal with Ike Perlmutter anymore and Alan Horn said sounds good to me So now there is a barrier between Marvel Comics and the films. The television side is still working with the comics, but um, yeah, and then that's why there was an Inhumans movies on, on, uh, you know, the production end, and it technically is still there, but they seem to have distanced themselves from that idea on film. Meanwhile, television has embraced the Inhumans, they're part of S.H.I.E.L.D., and we're seeing that continue.
1: And the the very fact that those kinds of conversations are taking place at that level is certainly an indicator that this is serious big business oh yeah it it, it amazes me frankly Um, you know I mean as someone who has dealt with these characters in live action film television animation um, the idea of being employable on that level was an an unattainable dream when I was most active at doing it Um, and in fact, when I got my uh, gig on The Twilight Zone, uh, my agent had an uphill battle, even though you know they loved my scripts, because Phil DeGare, the executive producer, had found out that I had done comics. And Phil had had a horrible experience at Universal as the writer, director, and producer of the two-hour Doctor Strange movie, which is... Uh, it was not his finest hour, and he knew it. And he, he just developed this real hostility uh, toward comics as a result of it. And it was a tremendous prejudice. Now you can, you know, write a ticket. Uh, you can, you know, for yourself if you have a comics background, but you couldn't at that time. It's was a liability. You had to hide it. Man, and I, you know, yourself and Len and
0: Marv and mm-hmm. Jerry Conway, mm-hmm. all, all you guys. I mean, you know, all the TV that you did and, and film
1: mm-hmm. and everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's. Well, you know, it was, but it was cartoons. It, it was a ghetto. Yeah. Well, but didn't you guys work on the, didn't you also work on the Superboy TV show? Um, that was one of those things where, you know, I pitched it, I had to deal with Fred Freiberger to do a show, and then the writers' guild strike hit. Oh, no kid! At that point, yeah. Kelly Bates and Mark Jones, who was a guy I knew in animation with, story editors at that time. Uh, and that was, I think the first season, or oh, oh. I, I, I don't really recall. Which one was it that Mike Carlin was heavily involved in? Was that the second?
0: Yeah. Well, I can't remember if it was the first or second Superboy series. I mean, it was the same producers,
1: I think, and they just replaced the leads, right? Wasn't it always those Universal syndicated shows? Um, well, it was. It was done on a Viacom, and it was uh, oh. it was the it was the Salkins. Uh,
0: right. That's right. Yes. The, the yes. Yeah, the guys who had the the movie license. Yeah. Ilya, they the
1: ones who produced Ilya, the show. Yeah the son, and Pierre Spangler. Were the the you know nominal executive producers of that show, and that was a, also a, a setback because they were very cooperative with DC, and all of the input was very comic book centric, and so you had a spectacle of people like I think it was was it Michael J. Pollard as Mick Szpitaler, and well cast but he's in the costume from the comics with the derby the and the crazy stuff and the thing yikes they didn't understand <laughs> at that time that a transliteration of that stuff to live action is inherently hilarious. goofy yeah,
0: yeah it looks goofy yeah. yeah
1: and what they're doing now with you know the Kevlar vests and all of the things you know to approximate the look of the characters mute the colors make it look less garish make it look more like you know um, street fighting action yeah Then spandex is very intelligent I, uh, but unfortunately fans are frustrated by the fact that they seem to want to reinvent the wheel every time out of the gate well they found out that there's big business in that too and I was present in one of those uh, revelations Batman the Animated Series, when we first started out there was a tremendous argument the studio wanted Batman to be black in a totally black costume and DC pushed back, Warner Brothers Animation was sort of in the middle. And this debate raged while we were continuing to produce the show, and all of us were told, just go ahead, just keep doing it the way you're doing it. DC finally prevailed by making the argument that you can think of the iterations of Batman as simply different product groups. And all of a sudden we started having these style guides. There would be the DC style guide for Batman DCU, Batman animated, Batman feature films. And every time there was a new feature film, there was a new style guide. And Kenner and Hasbro and all of the licensees brought into this. Wow, instead of just one product line, we've got three, ka-ching, ka-ching. And we were off to the races, and that's where we are now.
0: Man, I would love to see a, a financial pie, because that is something that sometimes gets lost on comic book fans. Licensing is so important now with television and film making the money that it does. It would still be interesting to see how that financial pie works out. I imagine that licensing still might. I, I don't know. I, well, maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm wrong.
1: That's why I failed. No, well, the questions now. All well, the questions that we used to ask ourselves are even more difficult to answer. Such as what drive, what product drives what. You still cannot make an argument that uh, mass media presence drives comic book sales. It's just not true. Why? Because comics are a low-margin business, and everything else isn't. So (laughs) what I mean is, they don't care. They really don't care. Um, For a long time, the argument justifying the existence of the two major mainstream publishers was that they were low-cost R&D for their corporate parents. Uh, the ship sailed on that argument a long time ago because in many ways the stuff being done on television and in features I, I would argue is more imaginative. It's certainly more accessible to a broader audience. Um, but do we have numbers on how many of those audience how much of the audience are hardcore fans being cultivated by the, by the studios and how much are uh, a mass audience being brought in to the tent if you will we don't have those we don't have that information as far as I know any more than the average retailer can tell you whether a free comic book day brings in any more kids into the business um, and frankly fans are the only people who really care I would I would argue um, the corporate entities care to the extent that they have to cultivate the fan constituency. But 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 if you can make the argument that they're irrelevant, the world will change again tomorrow. Well, and you even have a theory about that,
0: that um, we talked about on, on the podcast. But I wouldn't mind hearing your thoughts if a day were to come where because comics are for the big publishers such a small piece of the pie that maybe they would decide, you know, we don't need to make these. Lucasfilms did not publish its own Star Wars comics before being part of, of Disney and now Marvel. They licensed it to Dark Horse. And we had two decades of really good Star Trek or Star Wars comics that were vetted by Lucas but weren't published by Lucas and therefore we had more creative voices. So could you see, you know, talk
1: about that? Well, Comics for a long time, uh, in the 60s and 70s, were utterly dependent on their licensing. The only reason why DC was able to continue publishing Superman throughout the 50s, when superheroes were totally cold, was that he was on television. And so the paradigm became, (coughs) excuse me, that the licensing, you know, Gives us the soil in which to grow the, the, the flowers comics, of the okay. comics. Sure. And 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 uh, Paul Levitz and, uh, and Jeanette Collins' basic goal at DC when they took over was, we're going to turn this company into one that is profitable on its own terms on the basis of publishing operations, and not on licensing. And and they succeeded in that goal. And then the, you know you had your your. The, the boom with the you know sealing things in plastic bags and all the rest of that shipping five million of this and so back on. back in the nineties yeah yeah and then that bubble burst yes hard <laughs> and hard yeah and then they would then they would put back in a defensive crouch well we're, we're low cost R and D companies like IDW don't need to be concerned with licensing they don't license out they like they license in. They have an economic model that can make that work. Dark West is a little bit different. I mean, they've scored their biggest successes in their licensed product, but they're home for a lot more creator-owned stuff absolutely. Absolutely, than IDW. IDW has proven itself a very effective strategic partner with DC. And it wouldn't surprise me in the slightest if... The corporate parents said, well, what do we need to be printing pamphlets for? What do we need to be in the book publishing business for? Warner Brothers doesn't want to be. In fact, Warner Publishing was sold off uh, about 10 years ago. Okay. And the only Warner Brothers publishing entity, per se, is DC Comics. Wow. Um and they do some subcontracting work for uh, Warner Brothers Worldwide Publishing.
0: Is Simon & Schuster then a, okay, a... Okay, yeah, but I was going to ask, like, some of the other publishing things that, as I remember, were part of the Warner Brothers umbrella. You know, Simon & Schuster, was, that was Paramount. Oh, excuse me. Oh, okay. But yeah, I do know Warner Books. There were no other prestige publishers? I'm trying to think other than Time Warner itself. And you're right, yeah, Time, I mean, Time Magazine and, well, and whatever it is. And the this. weird
1: thing was, most of the other other publishing entities didn't want to have anything to do with the comics. That was beneath them. So, you know, Jeanette had to fight like hell to get Warner Books to do anything with the DC properties.
0: Those so Superman from the 30s to 70s books, they weren't published by Warner? I know Bonanza was like the, the No, the and, and, the, and the
1: confusion about a lot of those trade paperbacks is that, you know, DC owned the copyright. And if the original publisher didn't want to go back, Crown Books, by the way, I believe, was the publisher of okay. you're talking about. Okay. Um, if they felt, if licensed publishing felt they could set it up with another publisher um, on more favorable terms and the original publisher didn't want to go back to press on it, (laughs) it was theirs to do with you know as as they as they wanted uh that was the case with the original superman batman and wonder woman encyclopedias that michael fleischer did in the 70s and basically uh, simon schuster came up with the idea a couple of years ago of taking those three books and making them into expanded encyclopedias i worked on the superman volume oh my god yeah uh uh, i mean you know the manuscripts were this you know i had those they want and they want telephone books they wanted everything but the, yeah. prob- the problem with the Superman encyclopedia though was that they kept you know changing the continuity in Superman and the entries kept increasing and I have I'm on the phone with the editor saying what's the end point and the editor would just say well we want it all we want it all Wow and so I'm getting copies of um, the, there was the, the new Krypton sequence when we were doing it we, Jeff Johns was reinventing the we yes. there, right and they're sending me these scripts and they're sending you stuff to say I have yeah, to have an entry about this you have to Add that to this entry, yeah. And I'm going. Well, this is the Winchester Mystery House of books. We're never going to get this thing finished. (laughs) You could do 20
0: pages on Monel and all the various changes from when he first appeared in Superboy to all the
1: various reboots and different iterations. You would have to cut the manuscript down to 20 pages on. All right, I trust you. (laughs) I'm sure you probably did. (laughs) But the other thing was, it was all of equal value. There was no, you know.
2: What's isn't the, isn't what, this a short
1: entry? Isn't this right? All, no, right. no, it's just—it's all it, we want. It all we want. It all. Wow. So, you know, why did God invent the internet? You know, or, or Al Gore.
0: Are there any opportunities to like for something like that, especially given the confines of a book, to instead almost develop a Superman? You know, website that has all that. I mean, certainly fans have done that. I think to a degree with their own, you, oh, know, sure. you know, Superman homepage, which I love. Mm-hmm. Great, you know, mm-hmm. great website, and they, you know they do a tremendous job. But yeah, I mean that, that and I don't even know how you know, how to monetize that. If or whatever, if,
1: if the metrics can support um, an ad buy, that makes sense. I wouldn't be at all surprised to see DC and Marvel start doing discrete websites, character-driven websites like that. I mean, we look at what DCE has done with DC's web presence. You know, it's become so slick, so sophisticated. Um, They're producing it out of Burbank. You've got got talking heads out of studios trying to make it look like entertainment tonight. Oh, yeah. Um, Entertainment Weekly is practically a fanzine at this point for the the warner brothers all the properties yeah They're, they're taking it seriously now in a way that they didn't as little as five years ago and it's because it's something that was you know so far beyond the realm of possibility for somebody you know when he was at his most active in comics was possible that it's it's just it's you know, forgive the cliche, mind-boggling. <laughs> questions. Since before your sunburned hot in space, I have awaited a question.
0: <laughs> that would be the uh, the guardian of forever. Yes, from the city on the edge of forever. Absolutely. Any, any questions, guys? Because, again, we can ramble. Please go up to the microphone there, Ted. You think? <laughs> we can ramble? <laughs> Absolutely, man. Yeah, please.
2: Going back to what you said, I was really curious about. You said uh, the uh, about the lawsuits, and they're they're looking at all the different creators of somebody. Um, <laughs> And, I, I, and it's like almost like a, it's uh, watching like the Daredevil Netflix and uh, the, the credits and the thank yous. It's almost like a, a, a playing a game because you see these names like, okay, well, what character did they? Are they, you know, you know, they've created. Been and they created? Go and And some like, you know, if this character created Hawkeye, who, uh, it's his name is in there. Now, are they getting any kind of money, money, or just the thank you, or are they just covering their butts? I mean, you said that they're not worried about, they're not worried about work for hire. Are they? The Hollywood mm-hmm. thinking is mm-hmm. we well, should give these guys money and credit or not?
1: Well, I think there is a little bit of competition going on between uh, Disney and and Warner Brothers um, in terms of image, um, regarding creator friendliness. Um, I don't know what the policies are at Marvel, but I do know that at DC, they actively seek out um, creators to tell them, what have you contributed and we'll give you character payments. I mean, I'm, I'm making money off of a character I created for Supergirl that's in the current television series. What they do at Marvel, I, I don't know. But I do know that maybe there's a little more due, due diligence about who's contributed to what uh, that would be helpful on Daredevil. Um, for example, while they would, was instrumental, even though you know he's an artist, and of course they don't use the yellow and black costume and all the rest of that. Um, Wally was a significant contributor in the creation of the character.
2: Yeah, I was going to say what's really weird about that is that if you watch the
1: thank yous in Daredevil. I mean oh I'm, I'm sorry just uh, just to make it clear I haven't seen no 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 I just they, wanted to you know, make but it they, clear they why a, I was for some
2: bringing some reason, I mean, Is he absent from it I yeah, haven't Spurlock's noticed making a big deal yes you know Spurlock's, David Spurlock's supposed to be in sure. of the wood state oh that's right yes uh, but what's so interesting is like I'll see I saw George Tesca and I'm like what character and it was like a character in a Daredevil annual mm-hmm. and George Tesca drew and it was the first time this character so George gets the right Listing. they've never listed Wally they've listed everybody Else. And then Frank Miller gets a special mm-hmm. billing in the thank yous, which is really interesting too. Well, but you can, and I guess. It's funny because a modern audience
0: would say, "Well, sure, Frank created the Daredevil aesthetic, but really, Wally did." You're right. I mean, yeah. you go back to that first issue. Well, this is
2: when Elektra showed up. They got Frank. Oh, well, there yeah. you go. Well, and, that and, makes sense. And that, that weird. That uh, that I don't know what kind of, You know where that stands with Elektra and Frank. Well, and,
0: I mean, it's obviously Elektra's a huge part of season right. two. But That's it, well, funny because I almost thought it would also again be because Frank kind of returned it with, to that Wally mode. Like, what what
1: you what you're talking about, if I may, is retrofitting a definition of creator. yeah. Um, and it's uh, a gray area in a lot of cases. The
2: feature uh, the Marvel feature films, they do they do the same thing, uh, but they're really buried in the credits. Way down. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, like Stan or Jack, you know, up the front or the, Sure. But like the uh, either Black Widow or Hawkeye were right. created by some guy that never really is not a big name at all. Oh, yeah, he? had to be the writer or the, or the artist of that particular issue. I was that, wondering
0: if it's worth him. Uh, uh, I, I, yeah, I forget his name, German name.
2: In yeah. the 60s. Yeah. It
0: starts with a W. Right. And oh,
2: I was winter like, uh, Roth. Yeah, Werner Roth. No, not Werner. No. New, it, well, anyway, it is gone. Right it, right. like, it was just an obscure name that, it, you know, he's not a Gene Cohen level or a Woollywood club. Sure. Well, I
1: can can to speak to this from my own experience and I'll give you an example. Traditionally, the assumption is every superhero character is co-created by a writer and an artist unless they're the same person. Not always strictly true. The assumption on a character that I'd created uh, in Superman that they're using on Supergirl was that the Kurt Swan estate would get half of the payment and I would get the other. Until I produced the original sketches that I had drawn for the character, which Kurt followed, right. and so they said, "Okay, you get 100% of the uh, the, the, the character payment." So in a lot of cases, they're making an assumption, and in many cases, the people who were there at the creation of these characters are no longer with us, and their their estates, their children, their representatives may not necessarily have accurate information. Sure. Um, And in point of fact, I've seen a number of credits on stuff that I question. Why, for example, in the uh, Justice League animated stuff in which Aquaman appears, does the credit read Aquaman created by Paul Norris as opposed to Aquaman created by Mort Weisinger and Paul Norris? I don't understand that. but, but, but I'm sure the lawyers have a reason. But the for bottom
2: line, is you're saying, that they are they are trying to be pretty active because you know that's one thing about us comic book fans—we've always been so upset at the work for hired and mm-hmm. you guys, you, all you guys, not getting the proper credit that you deserve or you compensation, know, uh, compensation. And now you're saying Hollywood is kind of scared, but are you just scared of lawsuits, or they actually want to you know do the right thing? Or well, you know,
1: you're, we're also talking about the possibility of a response to case law in instances that. You know, we can't know because, you know, settlements... you know, protected by, you know, non-disclosure agreements. I don't know what the settlement of the Siegel State suit over Superman was. Obviously, there were wide-ranging ramifications, and anybody who has to use the Superboy character still doesn't know what the hell to do with it. Who does it belong to? What form does it take? Which version of Superboy? Because part of that settlement was to abstract Superboy uh, from the Superman continuity. So, some of these things that don't make any sense to us, why credits are phrased the way they are, could be the result of legal precedents set in those actions, and... In some cases, credits may be given not because they want to, not because of the generosity of their heart and they're eager to throw money at people, but because the court has a loaded gun to their head saying, do this or it's actionable. So this is what I mean when I say it's the department of who do we not want us to sue? (laughs) Who do we not want to sue us?
0: Yeah. Who knows uh, the character that Marty created that's in Supergirl? Anybody know? Well, there we go. Oh, I care because it's an awesome character. It's one of my favorite 70s characters. Oh, God. For real? What are you saying? I'm gonna say. two, one. The master jailer. Moving The master. I'm gonna. I'm giving you your credit where credits due, man. Are you <laughs> kidding? No. And honestly, it's I know. Fine. Give me credit where credit is due. Talk about something that's worth giving me credit for. No? Well, I, I. You know, I was hoping someone was gonna ask you about um, the difference between uh, your writing. Because again, you were you were kind of under the thumb of guy a guy like Julie Schwartz. It seemed like in the 80s, when we were getting things like your Blackhawk run, and your Secret Six run, that there was more freedom. I know in the case of Blackhawk, you were following, kind of what oh, taken had set
1: up, but it just felt like, you know, you what excited me about doing that is I, I you know blackhawk hardcore called blackhawk fans you know curse me but i loved that graphic novel that he did yeah and i remember reading that and the top of my head blew off because i've been working in television for about 8 or 9 years and had come to an understanding of the importance of scene structure and how to tell a story cinematically without relying over much on dialogue or, or, or text and what Howard had created was—I mean, it was hardly unique—but it was my first exposure to a comic book, a graphic novel, told in more cinematic terms. Didn't use captions, didn't use thought balloons. And this is why, you know, Howard trans, trans me, transitioned into being a, a successful TV writer Absolutely. because he understood scene structure. He understood point of attack. He, he understood where to button a scene, and he understood how to control the scene as a writer and then execute it as an artist. And To me, the most destructive concept in terms of preventing comics from becoming cinematic has been the so-called Marvel method or the the plot-first, pencils, then dialogue. Because the scene The scenes are not necessarily controlled or structured by people who understand scene structure. You don't need to have soliloquizer. You don't need to have Spider-Man swinging around talking to himself. You know how to construct a scene. And those few who start to begin to understand that think it's about trading exposition. Well, even when a scene is expository, what you have to do is build conflict into it. Why does that character need that information, as opposed to the beginner's mistake of, well, as you know, you know, yesterday Krypton or whatever? And that's one of the things that I think the TV shows, even more so than the films do better even than the comics. One of the things, though, that's really disappointing to me about the feature films is that they're now being written like bad comics. There's a difference between characterization and iconography, and we're too damn dependent on icons and our assumptions about them and the images that we have in our heads of these characters. As screenwriters, we've become lazy. Look at I'm gonna, I'm gonna be critical here. Pesky Basco, Superman or Batman versus Superman, yawn of Justice, as I, as I call it. We don't need to make you care about Bruce Wayne. We don't even need to tell you who the hell bruce wayne is we'll just show him running around saving people from buildings collapsing and you'll know he's the hero but besides you're a fan you're here already we've sold you we don't have to win you over we don't have to make you care about these characters it's in the bag you're already on our side and that's lazy writing and in both of Zack snyder's films it's the same thing it open with this flurry of action, all this stuff running around, and I'm sitting there going, "It's noisy, it's assaultive, and I don't care." Engage my emotions, make me care about this character. Why is he doing what he's doing? Oh, he's a hero. That's what he knows. Everybody knows Batman. Oh, shit! (laughs) There's a reason, and when this stuff works, it's because a writer has dug into the character and found the reason that it works. And in some cases, the TV cherry picks from the best ideas uh, of the comics, Um, so much of what Mark Waid and Jeff Johns, obviously, because he's in the room, um, what they contributed to Flash underscores all of that but it's right there this is this is a man outrunning the past this is a man running toward answers i'm the fastest man but the irony of all of these these tropes is that the more powerful they are there's always one point in their life where they are powerless superman for all of his power you still can't bring us peace in the middle east can't save the lives sometimes of the people most important to him one of the one of the most frustrating concepts for me was when John Byrne said let's keep mom and Pop Kent alive well I understood that you know he, he wanted to get off the, the, the Boy Scout curse he wanted to play Superman as younger and more relatable to the audience and he thought it was important for him to have people that he could talk to and go back to for advice But what that also removed was the tragedy of him being alone. alone. The most powerful man in the world who couldn't save his parents' lives twice. The most powerful man in the world, and yet, in some ways, powerless. And that, that duality, that internal conflict is what makes these characters, in my opinion, inherently interesting. Not their powers, not what they can do with them, not the fancy clothes they dress up in, and not the cool people they hang out with. But that dark night of the soul, where they have problems that all of us can relate to, they're just on another level. The powers are metaphors. And unless writers can learn to think in those terms, we're just going to keep getting flat, boring, and uninteresting, unemotionally engaging comics, and that's why the sales are dropping. The TV people, the movie people, the screenwriters, they understand that better than the comic book writers. Or at least they did because now we're starting to see stuff that's written just as lazily I don't need to reach out to you and sell you in other words there's no presumption of sales resistance on the part of the audience anymore they've bought in and it's shooting fish in the barrel so lazy work begets stuff. It is emotionally unengaging, and nobody wants to go see.
0: It's spectacle versus story and character, because Absolutely. that's what it seems to be in the films. And I've heard like really great filmmakers complain about the box office blockbusters and saying, yeah, there's no there there beyond the spectacle. That's exactly the phrase
1: that so. in my head. There's no there there. No, yeah. I'm with you.
0: Do you want to tease your, your
1: ambition for uh, what you'd like to do with your website as we close? One of the things that's come off of these Wood booms podcasts that we've done is, you know, you ought to teach. I'd love to learn from you. The people saying this to me, and it surprises me that, you know, they would have that feeling. So finally, I thought, okay. But there are a lot of websites out there now. You know, we'll teach you how to write and draw comics. You know, and, and they're being offered by people who haven't done anything. You know, some some guy who worked as an assistant editor at Marvel for three weeks has now got a website. He's going to teach you how to write comics. As if an editor in this business could teach you to write comics anymore, because they don't hire people who used to do the stuff to be editors anymore. But I didn't want to. You know the master class, the book on comics. Danny O'Neill did that. I didn't want to do that. So what I'm going to do, December 1st, is the deadline I've imposed on myself for the launching of a website in which I will offer my services as a writing coach in both comics and animation. And what that means is you would come with a project that you wanted to develop. The goal, the nature of it, the content is entirely up to you. And you would express what your goals were for it. Graphic novel, ongoing series, animated series, screenplay, whatever. Television pilot. And I will walk you through the steps of the process in order to get to that final draft, in final draft, of whatever it is, that you want to do, and a, a personal service thing, and you do it at various stages, I'm not telling you what's right. I'm not telling you what's good. That's not my business. What I want to do is tell them how to get where they want to go. Structure? And if structure, characterizations, uh, you know... Whatever's missing. Exactly. Or Or whatever I would suggest they need to think about in order to get where they want to go. And, uh, you know, as I say, I've had some incredible teachers, and I've had a, a wonderful career because of, and I still am having a wonderful career because of what I've learned, and this is the only way I can think of to give that back, and not incidentally, you know, let's be honest, capitalism is what it is. <laughs> make a of money, but, you know, not exploitatively. No, no, no. So that's that's what I'm working on now in addition to the other animations.
0: Well, if you're if you're interested in uh, what you've heard today, and, and really, uh, this is one of the reasons why I love talking to the guy as much as we do, and it's not enough. I, I, You know, there's a time where I know you're like, let's do a podcast every week, and I'm like, oh, if only I had that time. I would love to do that because you're full of stories, you're full of perspective, and I truly do appreciate it. No, you no, no, so. John, I said, I to to do uh, a podcast every week. But I'd help you. That's what you're saying. You're saying come to me. And and believe me, I would love to be the producer of the Marty Pascoe podcast. (laughs) Come. Not at all. Oh, not at all. Are you kidding? I don't think of this. No, no, no. I want to compete with you. (laughs) Not at all, man. No, no, seriously. I I really do. And I would say follow Marty on Facebook. And as this new project develops, I know he has other things in the works. uh, But uh, as you can tell from this conversation, really interesting perspectives from Marty Pasco and I'm glad he was well, able to share those time. with us. It's, today. T-
1: it's time to stop this. I know. So awesome. Awesome. I was the awesome. ocean awesome <laughs> because in two minutes these people want to see depression. The they really came into Oh, the, really not so at all. No, no, no. And, I mean, no, I, I, I think you were uh, saying time. time for
0: me. <laughs> Absolutely man. But no, Marty Pasco, everybody, thank you. Thank you all very much. It was fun doing that.